Jesus has explained that taking care of those in need with our excess or even out of our own need is the richness of God. He has more to say about wealth. And he said some of these things before, but the timing is right to reiterate it. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview in the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair the biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Agin. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, Jesus will tell his worried followers to trust him. The ESV uses the word anxious again, but Jesus will be using the Greek word meramano, that the New American Standard translates as worry. And it literally means divided into parts, like figuratively pulled apart. So I'm going to replace anxious with pulled apart. This is Luke 12, 22 to 31. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be pulled apart about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of much more value are you than the birds. And which of you, by being pulled apart, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you pulled apart about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and is tomorrow thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be pulled apart. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Man, I struggle with these concepts. It is too easy in a world of materialism to forget Jesus. It is too easy in a world of scarcity and debt to worry about survival, even if survival is weirdly reinterpreted to easy living. I know God will provide, perhaps double-mindedly, but I get stir-crazy when things are going poorly. I also know this occurs in me because my faith in Jesus wavers when it comes to reality. Foolishly, it seems easier to trust him in the things I can't see than to trust him in the things that I can but Jesus says that those of us who are part of the kingdom, which comes by faith, we don't need to worry or be pulled apart about anything. Man, what might it be like if we never feared such things? God provides for all the needs of everything he created from flowers and birds to us. And we can trust 
that he will provide for us. There's no need to worry or to store up surpluses to make it through. And that's not to reject saving for the next emergency or saving for a vacation, but it does reject the solidifying of our assets in mountains of stuff. Or even worse, having stuff and then worrying about the stuff. Jesus concludes with this, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He sees us as little sheep that need to hear comfort from our shepherd's voice, and he's not wrong. It pleases God that the kingdom is to be given to ones like us. And Jesus gives an interesting cause and effect. Notice it's not that God wants to give you the kingdom if you give to the needy. He says God is pleased to give it to you, sell to the needy. It's a response, not an entrance fee. But there was a cause and effect here. Sell your possessions and give to the needy, and this will provide you with money bags that do not grow old and unfailing heavenly treasure. If I'm worried about self-protection or supplying for my family, I'll never give to the poor. I'm too worried about being poor myself. But if I give, I gain. Do I gain here? Not necessarily. In one sense, there's a nice practicality on earth if this would work out. The poor would never worry because others were giving to them. And if everyone did this, there would be no poor and none of us would worry about being poor ourselves and we would all be more likely to give, which would keep the system running. But in a society where many are one missed paycheck from debt problems and some from homelessness and combine that with the judgment thrown at the poor instead of the charity thrown at the poor, and it makes us all insecure. And this is when the materialist in us will say, people won't help me, and that's why I'm afraid. And Jesus is asking us to trust that his people will find us if we need it. Some people will, some churches will, and some people won't, and some churches won't. We have to trust Jesus that we will find his true people. We have to trust in God's provision, which will free us up for generosity. In order to have a shot at understanding this passage, and I mean only a shot, we need to hold on to the fact that we are to trust God's provision for us. Side note, I hope I'm not creating a space where we're becoming overly confident in our interpretations of Jesus. All I'm doing here is reading Jesus with you and looking at how it could build our biblical worldview. In no sense do I have all the answers or that all these passages are understood and we can move on from them. These passages are meant to be returned to over and over as we meditate on what God means. And that's especially today's episode and next week's. So Jesus is still with the post-dinner crowds in Judea, and he talks on a different subject, which is readiness for him. Luke 12, 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. 
and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So what is Jesus talking about? This is a parable, isn't it? And so the master of the house is Jesus, and the servants would be us, but also when the master returns, he will serve us. He'll dress for service. Wow. And what is the house? It would be our city or our world. But who's the thief? That's where this gets a little bit confusing. You could say the son of man, who's also Jesus, because it says that we should be ready for the son of man and compared him to a thief. So is Jesus our master that we should wait up for? And then also the sneaky thief that we have to be on guard for? And what exactly is Jesus stealing? Are we to be in loss prevention mode right after he told us not to worry about our stuff? Or is it possible that the thief is someone else that is just being compared to the son of man? Because it says if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would have not left his house to be broken into. And the master of the house is Jesus. So there's some things to come back to and meditate on here. But the picture is the middle of the night. A great house is without its master. He's expected back soon. The servants are busy preparing. Every man's robe is girded and ready. Lamps are trimmed and burning. They're lighting their work and they're lighting the watch because they don't know when the master returns. And Peter catches that this is a parable, but the context is an issue because Jesus is always with them. He's always home in Peter's experience, despite his frequent warnings that he won't always be. Peter said in verse 41, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And I like this question. It's like, okay, Jesus, the 12 apostles are here. The 70 disciples are here. There's hundreds of other people here, including those who invited you to lunch to trap you in their words. Who are these instructions for? Am I to take notes? These are like the classic question I used to hear in my classroom. Is this on the test? Do I need to know this? Verse 42, And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So Jesus indirectly answers Peter. It is a message of instruction for everyone. And if a servant is faithful in his efforts, he'll be given a grand reward from the master. But there is a big but. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming 
and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him to pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Cause and effect. Do the work of the master and receive a reward. Pray on the servants and receive a penalty. This is a second parable. And the master is still Jesus, that carries over. And we who are kingdom citizens are still the servants, that carries over. So what's new? Instead of watching for a thief, we have a picture of really unfaithful servants hurting other servants, really abusive. And how did they get that way? They stopped believing the master was in charge or would ever return. And so they've taken over and they're running the house the way they wish. Other servants knew what the mission was, but they weren't doing it. And some servants didn't even know the mission anymore, so they weren't doing it. I mean, this could be a commentary on generational American church. What's to happen to the abusive servants? Very dreadful things. Jesus described the worst being sawn into pieces and tossed with the unfaithful. And for those who knew the mission, beatings, and those who didn't know the mission, light beatings. Okay, before we try to line up these punishments with theologies on eternity, let's keep in mind that it is a parable, a story to describe something we know, masters, servants, and human accountability, to help us understand something we don't yet know, how Jesus will respond to people when he returns. And it's pretty hard not to contextualize this as a time when Jesus is away, which would be the age of many of these listeners as they enter Jesus' departure and is still the time period we live in today. But will the sawing people and beating people be literal? No, but they are similes to the truth. Whatever the judgment looks like, abusers will get the worst. And those who don't know about Jesus' way will get the lightest. What's difficult is in this parable, Jesus has one person being particularly faithful to him, receiving a reward, while the others are facing different degrees of judgment. What is this referring to? It's fair to say that this is unclear, and we should just bring it with us into our other reading and rereading of this passage. Wright and Bird put it this way, God's future is coming, heavy with warning and promise, and it is vital to be ready and to interpret the present time and take appropriate action. Between the two parables, we know that we should be on mission and we should be anticipating Jesus' return. McLaren's exposition on Luke says, An attitude of expectancy does not depend upon theories about chronology of prophecy. It is Christ's will that we do not know when. And many of us are going to die first. Most trusters in Jesus have died. 
without this coming to pass. But that doesn't need to affect our attitudes either. For it's the same to go to him as it is for him to come to us. If we don't anticipate him, there's no chance we'll be dressed with lamps in hand. And and we increase the possibility of becoming an abuser, a plot loser, or a plot ignoramus. Let us not give up hope. For one to give up on the Lord's return is to give up on the full gospel of Christ and to doubt his word. And remember what he started with. Do not be pulled apart by anything. God is pleased to give this kingdom to you. As we continue to build our biblical worldview, we want to think about what in our minds needs renewed. When Jesus says, I'll be back, does he mean it? How much or how little impact does his return have on our daily life? And what mission drift in the church are we responsible for? How do we get back on track? And what portion of mission drift is generational? How can I experience an illumination of truth and join in a faithfulness that I don't even yet know exists? Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone, anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, Jesus will give a strong warning.